In our lesson this morning, we talked a little bit about uh, the relationship between the, the Christian and the Old Testament, and we got that from Matthew chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And so we, we really need to be careful that we don't get so gung-ho in our thinking of ourselves as New Testament Christians that we think that the law has been abolished. Uh, I don't think the law has been abolished. I think the law is still very important. I think the law is still a, a central part of our scriptures and a central part of our understanding of God and of Jesus and of our lives as followers of his. However, the law and our relation to it has undergone some changes through the Messiah. And that's one of the, the, the things that Paul, I think, spends uh, throughout his letters a significant amount of time trying to, to hash out for his readers. And I think that it was something that caused a lot of confusion in the early church because Jesus is, it doesn't always, uh, at least for us, or it's not recorded, uh, give very specific instructions about this is what you do, and this is what you do not do, and this is what you keep doing, and this is what you stop doing. He does, uh, for example, in Luke 24, go through with his disciples and uh, expound upon, uh, expound with them the things in the law and the writings and the prophets uh, that were written about him. And, uh, and so they're able to understand a lot of those things. But there was a lot of confusion about, okay, well, circumcision, we've always practiced this way on this side of the Messiah. How do we practice it on this side? And a Sabbath observance, we always practiced on this side, this way, this side of the Messiah. How do we practice it on this side of the Messiah? And not, there was, like I said, there was, there was some difficulty with that. Even among the apostles, by the way, they got into arguments over this. In Galatians 2, uh, Peter, for example, is struggling with uh, table fellowship with Gentiles. And I don't know if that comes, I, I would say, I don't think it specifically comes from his understanding of the law. I think it came more from peer pressure from other Jews who had a different understanding, but it was causing conflict in the early church. And when you read Paul's letters, he doesn't give a simplistic answer to it. He doesn't say, why are you guys doing this? We're not under the old law anymore. His letters could have been so short if that was his answer. If his answer was, well, I don't have to justify uh, why we don't circumcise, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't do Old Testament stuff anymore. He could have just given a real simple answer like that. But he actually uses the Old Testament quite a bit to make his point because while he doesn't I don't think he thinks that we're under the law in the same way that, uh, that uh, perhaps Israelites were who were in that covenant with God. He does still think that his teaching is consistent with a proper understanding of the law of Moses, but he's trying to help people have a proper understanding of it. So, for example, um, when it comes to circumcision, he doesn't just say, well, don't do that. That's Old Testament stuff. He says, let's read Genesis again carefully. And let's look at when Abraham was considered to be righteous. When did God justify him? Was it after his circumcision? It's actually quite a bit before his circumcision. And what is it based on? Read Genesis 15. It's based on his faith. Several chapters before he's circumcised, he's justified by God based on faith. We should be learning something from that as Christians, that as we open up the door to Gentiles and other people are joining into to, to our movement, you can be justified based on your faith even before circumcision, even without circumcision. Why does he go through the effort of demonstrating that order of events with Abraham in order to make his point? It's because the Old Testament still mattered. Uh, it's because he wanted to do things the right way. He just, he just had a different way of applying those things 
after the Messiah than before the Messiah. And I think that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount also. He, again, when he goes through and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not uh, commit adultery. But I say to you, he is not contradicting that. He's not saying, but I say to you, that's not important anymore. He's saying, but I say to you, what leads to adultery? The law was intent not only to change your physical actions, but also to transform you from the inside out. So where does adultery start on the inside? Well, it starts with lust. It starts with the way that you view other people, whether you view them as objects whose purpose is your own personal sexual gratification or a whole and complete person created in the likeness and image of God. If you see them as a valuable person in whom the image of God can be seen, then they're so much more valuable than just a person to, uh, to satisfy your own desires. And so, like, as Jesus goes through, he's not contradicting the law. I think he's getting to the heart of what the law was intending all along. And what some people in his day had been trying to give lip service to obeying the law, but trying also to only follow the externals or the bare minimum or a, a an interpretation of it that perhaps made life a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier to not commit adultery than it is to not lust. And Jesus is saying, well, let's get to what the law is calling you to do even from the very inside. And so all of that is just a way of saying that throughout the whole Bible, from Matthew even to Revelation in the New Testament, the Old Testament is central to just about every teaching and everything that the apostles and prophets are saying. That was their scriptures. And when Paul says things like all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for uh, correction and instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, He's talking about the sacred writings that he heard, that Timothy heard from childhood. That would be the Old Testament. Like the Old Testament is profitable for doctrine and for, for reproof and for correction. The, the Old Testament, a proper understanding of it can make you complete. Why is that? Because I think a proper understanding of the Old Testament gives you the ethics of Jesus. It gives you um, uh, the, the expectation of who the Messiah is, and it gives you um, uh, an understanding of who God is, and it gives you uh, uh, the way that God has called us to live, like if you interpret it properly. Now, if left on our own, I don't know that I could interpret it properly, but as Jesus does so, and as you see the New Testament writers continue on in that tradition, they're giving us ways of understanding it that illuminate and that uh, help us continue to live it out in a, in a godly way, and in a way that opens the door not just to one group of people, but to the whole world. And it looks a little bit different when it's opened up to the whole world. But even before the law was given, in Genesis chapter 12, Moses was, uh, Abraham was told that in him and in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Like the, the point from the beginning was that these, uh, the law and the people of Israel and the whole, all of the descendants of Abraham, they were to be a blessing to the world around them. And through Jesus, that blessing has come. And, and so as Paul defends his ministry, he'll go back to passages like that. And he'll say, that's what he's doing. He's bringing the blessing to the whole world. Why does he justify that with Genesis 12? Why does he have to go back and quote what God said to Abraham? Isn't that Old Testament stuff? It is, but the Old Testament still matters. Uh, and so again, I, I think there's new ways of reading it, 
But I think we should be careful before saying uh, we should disconnect ourselves from it. And I say all of that because there is actually a, a rather famous preacher, and he, he does a lot of good stuff, and I'm, not, I'm really not against him, uh, but I'm against one thing that he said. Uh, he was talking about uh, evangelism in our current world and culture and context, and if you read through the Old Testament, especially when non-Christians read through the Old Testament, um, some of the things in there, and this is just true, they're difficult to digest. Sometimes you read things and you think, that, that makes me uncomfortable that that happened, or that God said that, or that God approved of that, and uh, that gives Christians a lot to try to explain. And his mindset was basically, look, we're followers of Jesus, and teaching the ethics of Jesus fits in a lot better than also teaching all of that stuff also. So what he said we should do is we should try to unhitch ourselves from the teaching of the Old Testament because it creates more problems for evangelism than just teaching Jesus. He thinks if you want to reach the world, um, it is easier to do that and better to do that without dragging all of that along with you. So he's called for Christians to, to unhitch, is the word that he used themselves, from the Old Testament. And as I read the book of Matthew, as Matthew is trying to teach the story of Jesus and to convert the world around him, he feels the exact opposite. Uh, he is going to saturate virtually every word that he says in Old Testament uh, language and imagery and in teaching, like throughout the whole thing. He's going to say, no, if you want to understand Jesus and if you want to understand the gospel properly, the Old Testament has to be central to that. So what I thought we could do in the lesson tonight is just look through Matthew a little bit, since that's where the Sermon on the Mount is, and that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings, and see some of the different ways that Matthew, the author, utilizes the Old Testament to tell the story of Jesus. Um, so if you look at Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to start, and we're not going to go through the whole book. We're pretty much just going to look at the way that he does this up to the Sermon on the Mount. So just the first couple of chapters. But we'll see some interesting strategies of making the Old Testament a central part of telling the story of Jesus. Um, one of the ways he does that is the expectations that his audience had at the time, showing how Jesus meets them. And a lot of those expectations that they had were things that were rooted in the Old Testament. And so uh, Matthew chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's the first verse of the book and the first verse of our New Testament, the way that it's ordered. And uh, yeah, just about every single one of those words makes no sense without the Old Testament. Uh, as you read through uh, the record of the genealogy, something interesting about the translation of that phrase right there, um, the word genealogy, as it's translated in my Bible, might be generations or something like that in your Bible. The Greek word for that is the word Genesis. Uh, that is the, 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 that word is the word that is the name of the first book in the Greek Old Testament, uh, which is the book of Genesis. That's where we get our name for it from. And so he begins by saying the book of Genesis would be a very literal translation of that first phrase right there. The book of Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. So then you get to the word Messiah or Christ. Um, that is a word that no one would, like, we wouldn't know what that word means without the Old Testament. That is a word that is infused with uh, significance and meaning from various passages and expectations that are gained from reading the Old Testament. And so that's telling us what kind of book we're about to be reading. 
you're going to read the book of Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, and you know, oh, the Messiah, that's the one that we've been longing for. Okay, so we're about to find some things out about him. Well, who is he? The son of David. Well, son of uh, is actually a pretty common phrase in the Old Testament. Uh, it, and son of David especially was a messianic title that was given uh, to someone who they were putting their future hopes in. But David himself is a pretty central character. Uh, you read First and Second Samuel, there's quite a bit about him. Uh, he's an important guy. He's a king of Israel. And by calling Jesus the son of David, that says a whole lot about who he is, even more than just a fact about genealogy. It's a fact about his royal line. It's a fact about uh, what expectations are going to be put upon him. It's a messianic fact. It's like all of that is wound up and bound in that uh, title, son of David. And then the last one, son of Abraham. All right, so then you're going all the way back to Genesis, and he is showing you that the very father of uh, the, the people of Israel, the father of the, the people that the whole Old Testament is written about, basically, is uh, someone that Jesus connects himself back to. So, like, again, if you are reading this without the Old Testament in mind, none of that makes a lick of sense to you. Uh, the book of Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, and then he gives this lengthy genealogy. Genealogy basically goes down through uh, verse 17. And as you read through the genealogy, he takes you from Abraham to David, the two that he's already mentioned, from David to the Babylonian deportation. Without the Old Testament, you don't know what I mean by that. Uh, and then from the Babylonian deportation to the coming of the Messiah. And so he takes you, in essence, from the start of the people of Israel to the start of the monarchy to the end of the monarchy to the Messiah. And in the Messiah, the son of David will return to reestablish that kingdom, the monarchy, the kingdom of God. And that's what whole Jesus' whole ministry is going to be doing. So the monarchy that came to a close when uh, Babylon came in and put an end to their kingdom and brought them all as captives to go live in Babylon, that's going to be reignited through Jesus. So even the structure of the genealogy is giving people hope. Oh, the kingdom will be restored through the Messiah who is now coming. But what is a genealogy? Well, on the one hand, there's, you know, just there's some facts there about who begat whom and all that stuff. Uh, but a genealogy is also, if you're looking for a way to catch people up on where we are in the story, a genealogy is a really efficient way to do that quickly. What I mean is Matthew wants the reader to know from the very first chapter, we are not starting a brand new story right here. We are actually reaching the climax of a story that's been going on for quite some time. And the quickest way to summarize it is to give this list of names that brings you from the foundational beginning of Israel to the Messiah coming to restore and to redeem them. And so every one of these names is a person, is a life, is a story. Every one of these people lived and breathed and has a role in bringing this all about. Some of them we know quite well. Some of them, uh, you can go back and read their stories in the Old Testament. Some of them, uh, you know, they, they might have lived uh, in the intertestamental period in a time where there's not as much about them. But so many of them, you read through and it tells you, oh, okay, so this is a story that you can connect back, you know, 2,000 years. This is a story that has been building up for quite some time and we're about to reach a pinnacle of it. So all of that is how he gets through verse 17 and then he starts the story in verse 18. 
now. The birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. And so quite an introduction. Uh, it's, it's, he summarized the entire story from Genesis 12 through the, the coming of the Messiah. He's told you about uh, the rise of the kingdom. He's told you about the fall of the kingdom. He's told you about Babylonian captivity. He's told you about the hopes of a Messiah that's going to come. And now let me tell you about his birth. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's 17 verses. It's not the most riveting reading unless you've spent some time in the Old Testament and some of these names mean something to you. But Matthew relies upon the Old Testament to get you to understand what Jesus is about to do. I would say it would be really hard for anyone to understand the significance of the life of Jesus without understanding the story that has been building up to him all this time. It would be like starting Anna Karenina in like the final third of the book or something like that, and you don't know what has led to this, and you don't know about the affair, and you don't know anything, what in the world is all this about? Like, if you just start towards the end, a really nice guy getting crucified is, a, is not good. Like, in a resurrection is really powerful, you know? And so like, you can, you can learn some things about that, but the story of Jesus is so much more than a really good guy who got crucified. And so much of understanding, well, what, what more is there comes from understanding how the story has built up to that moment for thousands of years. And so Matthew wants to do that from the get-go. A second way that Matthew uses the Old Testament to tell the story of Jesus is by paralleling the life of Jesus with the life and events of uh, certain characters and peoples from the Old Testament. What I mean is he'll tell events from the life of Jesus in such a way that make you immediately connect them back to different people and events in the Old Testament. And when you do that, you'll see strong resonances and connections and similarities between those stories that can teach you a lot. But you'll also, as you're doing that, begin to notice variations, and you'll begin to notice differences, and those can teach you a lot as well. So, to give just a, a quick example, um, starting off with the birth of Jesus, and I know I've mentioned this one before, it's hard not to mention this one when you talk about Matthew, but there's a very strong Jesus-Moses connection throughout the early chapters of Matthew especially. Um, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And at that time, there is a ruler ruling over the land who is very nervous about this birth. And he wants to do something in order to protect his kingdom and his reign that will save him from this birth that is making him very nervous. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to have all the children of Bethlehem, two and under, executed. It's a vicious decree, and it's a terrible thing to do. But it should remind you of another very ruthless ruler who is in a similar situation. If you go back to the book of Exodus, there's a Pharaoh who is very nervous about these people being born. And they're like foreigners who are being born within his land. And none of them have done a thing yet. Like there hasn't been a crime committed. They haven't been causing problems. They haven't been aligning themselves with their enemies. But there's just too many of them. And that number starts to make him worry. And he thinks, you know, they could if they ever decided to team up with some of our enemies, they could turn against us, and I wouldn't be able to stop them. So what am I going to do to protect my kingdom and to protect my reign? What can I do? I know. And he issues a decree to have all of the male children among that people executed. 
And, and so you have kings who are afraid of losing their kingdom as they look at the people of God. And what do they decide to do? They decide to take it out on the children of those people. Those are both horrendous events, but Jesus and Moses enter the story in very similar circumstances. Moses is hidden for a couple of months until they can't hide him anymore, and in desperation, his mother puts him in a basket in the Nile River, and uh, he is uh, left there uh, in order, hopefully, to be found or to be saved. You know, I, I think she thinks the odds are better. When you think the odds of your child are better surviving in those conditions than hiding them in your house any longer, you're living in a dangerous place. Well, that's where she is, and lo and behold, by the grace of God, he is discovered in Egypt, and he's actually raised in Pharaoh's household. Do you remember what Joseph and Mary do when, uh, in those terrible circumstances in order to flee to save the life of Jesus? They go to Egypt. Uh, when you read Matthew, that, that's, that's where they go to, is they go to Egypt. And Jesus, just like Moses, spends part of his childhood in Egypt. Uh, that's, that's kind of incredible uh, that you have another strong connection there. In order to escape the wrath of the king, they, they get closer to the king. And they are there, uh, or, or Moses gets closer to the king, Jesus gets closer to Egypt. But they are there until... Uh, there, they eventually return back home. And as they return back home, the similarities uh, continue. Uh, you have Moses who begins to lead his people, um, and he goes through the Red Sea and then enters into the wilderness with those people for 40 years. Jesus goes through the water of the Jordan River through baptism and then immediately enters the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, after that wilderness experience, or during that wilderness experience for Moses, he goes up on a mountain to teach the people the Word of God. We are right now on Sunday morning studying through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes up on the mountain to teach the people the Word of God. And uh, during that 40 days, uh, or sorry, the 40 days that Jesus is in the wilderness and while Moses is there in the wilderness, they both do something that's pretty rare that only, I think, three people in the Bible that I'm aware of uh, have a record of doing, and that is that they fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses does that, and Jesus does that. So all of this are ways of, you know, Matthew's not like quoting the Old Testament and saying that, uh, you know, what Jesus did, that is you know, cited as what Moses did or anything like that. But just the way that he tells the story, the events, they line up and they connect with the other one. So uh, you do this with Jesus and Moses, but also this, and this is important, and we'll see it a little bit clearer here in a minute. Jesus is also being paralleled with the people of Israel themselves. So in that 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus experiences the same temptations there that Israel experienced during their 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is uh, tempted with bread. If you remember the children of Israel, one of the, the areas that they were tempted was with bread. And because they weren't getting the bread they wanted, they said, well, let's go back to Egypt. And then God rained down bread from heaven from them. And in Deuteronomy 8, God explains that he did that so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does that, does that verse sound familiar? That's the one that Jesus quotes to Satan about bread in the wilderness. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, that's the message that Israel was supposed to learn in the wilderness, but failed to learn. But it's the one that Jesus succeeded and passed the temptation in his wilderness experience. Uh, the next temptation 
uh, you have uh, Satan who um, is trying to tempt Jesus uh, with all of the, the kingdoms of this earth if he would but fall down and worship him. And Jesus uh, says, you shall not test the Lord your God. Uh, now, where does that come from? That also comes from Deuteronomy, and it's specifically about when the children of Israel tested God about, um, tested God about uh, the, uh, the water. They didn't have enough water. And so Moses ended up getting them water from a rock. And that place was called uh, Meribah, which is testing, because it was there that they tested the Lord. And they were there to learn not to test the Lord your God. And so that was, um, that was not when say, he was offered all the kingdoms. That was when he was told to, to cast himself down and he would be uh, picked up. But the last temptation is when Jesus was told to worship Satan. He would give him all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's where Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him, which again, if you go to the, back to the wilderness story of Israel, they worshiped uh, other gods at the bottom of Mount Sinai at the beginning of the wilderness experience, and at the end of the wilderness experience, there in the plains of Moab, they started worshiping uh, the gods of Moab, and it's like throughout the whole thing, you see the children of Israel fail the tests about bread, they continue to test God, and they continue to worship idols. And in each one of those, Jesus goes to the wilderness and quotes a scripture about their wilderness experience. Only every place that they failed, he passes, he succeeds. And so by noticing the similarities, they're both in the wilderness, for 40 other days or years. Uh, they are hungry, they are thirsty, they are being tempted, yet the difference is that Israel and Moses continued to fail those temptations, whereas Jesus continued to pass those temptations. Remember, Moses didn't make it out of the wilderness, but Jesus does. And Jesus comes out of the wilderness to lead us to the promised land. And so as you're reading Matthew and you get to chapter 5 and you see Jesus is now out of the wilderness and he's now beginning his ministry and he's now beginning to teach, he's gone farther than Moses could. And so, yeah, you see all those similarities there, but then those differences start to emerge where you're taken even deeper into the story and you begin to see something even greater about Jesus. He's not just a, a, the reappearance of a Moses-type figure. He's something far better than that. He's even greater than Moses ever was. He is the embodiment of what Israel was called to be. And you see this not just in the wilderness, but I think throughout the whole story of the Old Testament, Israel had a vocation and a job that they constantly failed to live up to. Jesus, as an Israelite, takes Israel upon his shoulders and ushers in what they were called to bring. He becomes what they were supposed to be. He fulfills the law, whereas they failed to. He gets out of the wilderness faithfully, whereas they, the whole generation died in the wilderness. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, but Jesus actually became the light of the world. They were supposed to be, and I, we don't have time to spend too much time in this, but the suffering servant. Uh, is, uh, when you read the servant passages of, of Isaiah, a lot of times Israel is specifically mentioned as the servant. And yet Jesus takes on the role of that servant, and he actually becomes that faithful servant that Israel was supposed to be. Jesus embodies it and becomes it in the truest and most real ways possible. So you see all of that makes sense in the ministry of Jesus, but would be completely missed without a, a, a healthy understanding of the Old Testament that led up to that. 
Another way that Matthew um, uses the Old Testament to tell the story of Jesus, not only in introducing him as the climax of the Old Testament story, and not only in paralleling his life with different lives and events from the Old Testament, another way he does it, and this is the way that we, we talk about a lot, um, is through fulfilling various passages from the Old Testament. Now, I want to I be careful in how I uh, say this. Because um, I think there is pre- prophecy and prediction, and then there's also uh, fulfillment of different events and passages. And I think Jesus does both. But sometimes I think we might uh, mingle those together as though they're one thing. And what I mean by that is I think there are specific predictions future predictions that you can read about in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, I'll give you one of them in the early chapters of Matthew. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 in verse uh, verse 3 through 6, this is uh, when Jesus is, is born king of the Jews, and it says, uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah 5.2 about this ruler who's going to come from Bethlehem. And it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means uh, least among the leaders of Beth of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So if you go back to Micah 5.2, you have a lot of concern about the future and, and you know big armies that are surrounding Israel and fear about how they're going to survive. And there's this prediction about an unspecified ruler who's going to come, and he will ultimately be their peace, and he is going to come from Bethlehem. And that was read to be a prediction about the Messiah. And when is that going to happen? We weren't told exactly when that was going to happen, and what was that going to look like? Well, we weren't told exactly. But here, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being a ruler of his people, like that that is a prediction fulfilled by Jesus. But here's something that's interesting. I said it's a prediction fulfilled by Jesus. When you read through this, the word fulfilled is not used in this passage. Matthew uses the word fulfilled quite a bit when talking about the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, there are 10 different passages from the Old Testament that as he's talking about Jesus, Matthew's telling you what Jesus did, and all of a sudden he stops the story and he like tells the reader, by the way, notice this, this happened to fulfill this passage, and he'll quote that passage. Like he interrupts the story to make sure you know when Jesus fulfills a passage from the Old Testament. When you go back and you read those passages that Matthew says are fulfilled, what you'll notice is that often they're not actually predictions about the future. Like Micah 5.2 is a prediction that is fulfilled and that, that comes to pass in Jesus. But what he says about that is this is what was written by the prophet. So like if, it's, if he's predicting a future, then he's just saying, this is what he's talking about. This is what he wrote about. He was writing about the ruler coming from Bethlehem, and that's Jesus. But when he uses the language of fulfilled, it's not always or usually about uh, a prediction of a future event that the Messiah is going to, to come to bring about. It usually has something like, here's a passage that you saw the meaning in way back there. 
Well, I'm going to show you a fuller, deeper, richer, more fulfilled meaning in Jesus. And so it's not necessarily a prediction about Jesus, but it's a passage that Jesus lives into and gives a fuller, deeper meaning to than otherwise would have been there. Similar to when Jesus says uh, that he, uh, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, and then look what he does with the law of Moses. Uh, when he goes and he shows, Moses said, you shall not murder, but I say not to be angry, not to insult, not to call someone a fool. He's, I mean, that's not like a prediction, and then Jesus gives the, the fulfillment of the prediction. Jesus just gives a richer, deeper, fuller understanding of what it means in the law of Moses when it says do not kill. And the same thing with do not commit adultery and, and all of those different things. Those aren't predictions. Those are just Jesus giving a dip, deeper, richer meaning to it. When Jesus is baptized and he says, permit it, this is in Matthew chapter 3, permit it to fulfill righteousness. There wasn't like a, a passage in the Old Testament that predicted the baptism in, in righteousness, and then Jesus comes and, and satisfies the, what that prediction was about. Like, it's not about future prediction. It's about bringing righteousness to its fullest and complete level through his obedience to God. And I think, think the same thing is true with a lot of the passages that you read where Jesus um, fulfills different passages from the Old Testament. So, if you look at like Matthew chapter 1, um, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but we'll just kind of briefly look at a few of these. Matthew 1 and verse 21 and 22. This is uh, when Jesus is born of Mary. It says, She will bear a, a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from the, their sins. This all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated mean God's with us. Now, there's something kind of shocking about that right there, because if you look at what the angel uh, says in verse 21, it says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. And then it says, this was to fulfill the passage that says, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a different name. Uh, so, like, like, if you're just reading it and it says, like, oh, the, the, you'll, you know, you'll bear a son and call his name Jesus, because the Old Testament tells you you'll bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. You might say, well, that's the wrong name. Uh, but I think that, that surprising twist with the name right there is actually the key to understanding the story and the fulfillment that's taking place here. Because he's, his, his physical name, like the name people called him that was Jesus, and that means uh, savior or salvation. You know, it's related to the, to the Hebrew word uh, uh, Joshua, actually, which, which means salvation. Um, but in the passage that he cites— from Isaiah chapter 7, if you go back and read that, you don't get the impression that he's talking about something that's going to happen 700 years from now, there's going to be a Messiah born, and his name is going to be Emmanuel. If you go back and read that, you have a king who's terrified about a, a battle that's about to happen. Assyria is like a mighty world empire is bearing down upon him, and he has these two nations that have joined an alliance, and they're trying to get him to join also, but he doesn't want to join the alliance. He would rather either give tribute to Assyria or maybe go to Egypt for help. And Isaiah the prophet is coming and saying, hey, you need to trust in God and give your allegiance to him, not to Assyria, and also don't join the alliance. But he's quivering, and he's afraid, and he thinks, but they're going to destroy me. They're going to remove me from my throne if I don't join the alliance. And he says, hey, I'm telling you, there's a young lady 
who's going to have a child, and before that child is even old enough to know right from wrong, your problem with this alliance is going to be gone. And that's, that's the passage. Like, that's, that's basically what it is. But the name that's given to the child is Emmanuel. And what that name means is God with us. And the point is you need to trust in God, King, uh, King Ahaz, because God is with you right now, and he will see you through this difficulty. And so the, the sign to him, if you actually read the next verse in Isaiah chapter 8, he says that children were given to him as signs. Uh, signs and so his, his chi- children have symbolic names throughout the book that mean certain things. Well, when you go and you read it and then you look at the book of Matthew, the way that he's applying it, if you look at the end of verse 23, after citing the verse and he says, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is a different name than the name they just said to call Jesus, he then translates that. It says, which translated means God with us. That's the word he's wanting you to focus on right there. Jesus is introduced by the very first prophecy in Matthew as God with us in a fuller, richer, and deeper way than you can even uh, understand in that Isaiah passage. Uh, Jesus is born of a virgin and is actually God among his people. And then as you continue to read through the book of Matthew, you'll see all of these ways in which Jesus bears witness to the fact that he shares in the identity of the God of Israel in story after story. And so from the very first passage, you are now introduced because of a quotation from the Old Testament that Jesus is actually God. Now, if you were to go back and read Isaiah, I don't think that that incarnation is necessarily what you would think when you were reading that, but he is fulfilling that passage, giving a fuller, deeper, richer, and and newer meaning to it, to where when you see it in Jesus, you begin to see, oh, wow, the name Emmanuel applied to Jesus. He is Savior, and he is God with us. Uh, You begin to see him in in a, a new light and in new ways, and I think that's the way that throughout Matthew, he tends to use the Old Testament. If you look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15, these fulfilled passages, when Herod is trying to uh, have the the children of Bethlehem executed, it says, uh, they fleed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that's a quotation from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And the quotation is actually about Israel coming out of Egypt. He says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I kept calling, they kept calling to them, the more they kept going to them, and they kept worshiping the Baals. But it is I who taught Ephraim to walk, and it is I who led them with cords of love and held them in my arms. Like, you read through Isaiah 11, and it's about God loving Israel and calling them out of Egypt, and then being a, a loving, faithful, good father to a rebellious child who keeps going after other gods and keeps uh, turning against God. That's what Hosea 11 one's about, and yet that's the passage that's quoted about Jesus. Why? Well, I think for the same, the same connection we saw in the, the wilderness where Jesus was embodying the story of Israel, only succeeding where Israel failed, here Jesus shares in the same Exodus story. Just like Israel was called out of Egypt as a youth, so Jesus was called out of Egypt as a youth. But where Israel then turned against God at Sinai and throughout their history and kept wanting to go back to Egypt, Jesus becomes the new Israel who is faithful to God throughout the rest of the story. And so how does he fulfill this passage? Well, it's not 
read Hosea 11. It's not predicting something that's going to happen to the Messiah in, in uh, you know, hundreds of years in the future. It's talking about what God did with Israel in the past. But Jesus fulfills it by living into that story and then creating a new way of applying it and creating a, a better ending to that story that had failure in the story there. Jesus brings success to the story here. It's, it's a fulfillment of that passage, not a, a prediction coming to pass, but he fulfills it in a new and greater way. And this happens uh, throughout. When you look at uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse uh, 17 and 18, when the children of Bethlehem are killed, it says this happened to fulfill what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, uh, and, or that was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And it's about the children of Israel who were taken away into Babylonian captivity. And Rachel, the, 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 you know, the, the mother uh, back in the book of Genesis, she is looking through time at her children and seeing them taken away into captivity. And she's weeping because she misses her children and she wanted better things for them. But then the passage goes on to say, but they won't be there forever. They will come back, and the weeping will be, the, it will, there will be comfort. They will no longer be ruled by foreign rulers, but they will return to their own land. And then you keep reading Jeremiah 31, and it says, And behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I led them by the hand out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, even though I was a husband to them. But uh, I will be merciful to their transgressions and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. It's like you read through Jeremiah 31, and it ends with this picture, not of a mother weeping for her children, but of the children coming back, of a new covenant being inaugurated and established. And it's one not like the one out of Egypt where they broke it, but it's a greater ending to the story. It's one where they are forgiven and their lawless deeds are remembered no more. If you go back and you read the context of these quotations, you end up seeing many resonances with what Jesus is doing. And so how does Jesus fulfill this passage? Well, it's not a prediction about what's going to happen to Bethlehem hundreds of years in the future. Rather, it is a tragic event in the history of Israel that came to an end with a glimmer of hope for something greater on the horizon. And Jesus comes in to bring about, through that same despair, the greatest hope that there is. And, and, and so you go through Matthew and you see these things uh, over and over again, and we don't have time to, to keep going through them. But in all of these ways, Matthew is connecting our understanding of who Jesus is to various passages, various people, various stories, and, uh, to, and various uh, um, uh, events from the Old Testament to help us get a clearer and better understanding of who the Messiah actually is. And so, without, uh, without the Old Testament, uh, there would just be no way to appreciate what Jesus has come to do and what God was doing through the Messiah. And so uh, as we read the Bible, it's important to read the New Testament. I think it is. Uh, and I think the New Testament's wonderful and I love it and all that stuff. But the New Testament is the end of the story. And you should never pick up a novel and just read the end of the story. Uh, you'll appreciate the end so much more if you see what has built up to it and find out maybe what that end means a little bit. And so uh, I would encourage each of us to, uh, 
to familiarize ourselves with the Old Testament, when you see it in the New Testament, actually go back and read some of it. I, th I think you'll, you'll see even deeper uh, connections, perhaps, than, than we might on a surface reading. And so um, I think that's just kind of a fun study, and it's something I enjoy doing. Uh, but if there is anyone here tonight who you look at your life, if there are sins that you would like the help and prayers of the church, or if anyone would like to become a Christian tonight, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.